The writers of detective stories can be as much of a mystery as the plots they create. During the 1920s and 30s, this attitude was especially prevalent. Some authors, grudgingly or not, accepted the publicity duties that often go with literary success. Dorothy L. Sayers, with her day job in advertising, was even quite good at generating column inches when she wanted to. But others actively hid from the limelight, refusing to supply photographs for book jackets and publishing under strictly guarded pseudonyms. Anthony Barclay was one such author. He had an outsized influence on this period of crime writing. He was the founder of the Detection Club, as well as an innovative novelist fascinated by the whodunit's potential for psychological development and the way it could reflect real-life murder cases. But during his lifetime, he was reluctant to court attention, and since his death in 1971, there's been far less revival or adaptation of his work than other long-lived Golden Age authors, like Agatha Christie, say, or Naya Marsh. Let's get to know him a little better, shall we? Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Before I start today, I want to tell you about a new feature I'm adding for members of the She Done It book club, the membership scheme that keeps the lights on for the show. Earlier on this year, during the period of strict lockdown in the UK, I ran some weekly live streams where we watched TV adaptations of detective novels together. I'm now bringing that back as a regular monthly date, so that on the last Sunday of every month we can get together to watch something mystery-adjacent. The first one will be on the 25th of October, and appropriately enough, we'll be watching Suspicion, an Alfred Hitchcock film based on an Anthony Barclay novel. If you'd like to enjoy that with me and other members, as well as getting access to all the other benefits of the club, including episodes without advertising, extended versions of interviews, and the monthly book club discussion, sign up now by visiting shedoneitbookclub.com join, or by clicking the link in the description of this episode. Anthony Barclay Cox was born in 1893. He was one of those unlucky people born into a family of overachievers. His father was a doctor who was involved in pioneering early x-ray research. His mother had been one of the first women to study at Oxford University and came from an aristocratic family with connections to the Earl of Monmouth. Although Anthony was educated at private school in Oxford, he managed only a third in classics. While his younger brother dazzled everyone at Cambridge with his mathematical brilliance, and his younger sister got her doctorate in music from the University of London. Antony grew up in a comfortable, even grand upper middle class house, but was perhaps always aware that he wasn't the star of the family. Why does this matter? Well, as a writer, Barclay often explored characters with inferiority complexes of one kind or another. He even wrote one book, 1939's As for the Woman, in which the put-upon protagonist is outshone by a younger brother who is a Cambridge scholar and a younger musician sister. Barclay might have been secretive about his personal life when it came to publicity or biographies, but he put at least some of his feelings on display in his fiction. Anthony Barclay volunteered to fight in the First World War, graduating from university in 1914 and going straight into the army. He didn't have a good war, if there is such a thing. He was gassed while on the front in France, 
and had to be invalided home to recover, with his health never to be the same again. A series of desk jobs followed, and in 1917 he married his first wife, Margaret. Upon leaving the army after the armistice in 1918, he helped to manage the family's finances and tried out various business ventures, although nothing really stuck for long. He began to get into writing, contributing humorous sketches to Punch magazine, alongside his brother Stephen. And then, in 1925, he published his first crime novel, The Leighton Court Mystery, which was dedicated to his father. This somewhat immature story is nevertheless crucial to understanding him better as a writer, both because it introduces his regular amateur sleuth Roger Sheringham, and also because it was published entirely anonymously. For this first work, Barclay didn't even come up with a pseudonym. On the cover of the first edition, it literally says, The Leighton Court Mystery by... From the very beginning, then, he was private and closed off about his literary endeavours. I'll just give you a brief idea of how Barclay's first novel fits into what else was going on in detective fiction at the time. 1935 also saw the publication of Agatha Christie's fifth novel, The Secret at Chimneys, and she'd published one short story collection as well. Freeman Wills Crofts was also already five novels into his prolific writing career. Dorothy L. Sayers had published her own first effort, Whose Body, in 1923, and would follow it up with Clouds of Witness in 1926. 1925 was also the year that John Rode, Ronald Knox, and husband and wife writing team GDH and Margaret Cole had their first full-length detective novels published. Barclay was joining a movement very near its beginning. The following year, he followed this first novel up with The Witchford Poisoning Case, again an outing for Roger Sheringham. This is a much more original plot than the first book. It actually draws some aspects from the real-life Maybrick poisoning case that I've covered on the podcast before, with the central character of Mrs Bentley being arrested after her husband's death because there's just too much arsenic everywhere for her to be innocent. Roger Sheringham, however, is convinced that the evidence against her is too conveniently overwhelming and sets out to find another explanation for the crime. Also published anonymously, this book is notable because of how Sheringham's character develops. He becomes, unlike the Sherlock Holmes archetype, a human and fallible sleuth who sometimes gets overexcited and jumps to incorrect conclusions. I think in this plot we also start to see Barclay's keen interest in psychology begin to surface. Indeed, The Witchford Poisoning Case is sometimes credited as being the first psychological crime novel, even at this early stage when other crime writers were delivering canny plots that satiated the public's endless demand for puzzles. Barclay was interested in exploring the why of a murder mystery, as well as the how and the who. While Barclay certainly isn't everybody's cup of tea, he does have one rather notable fan to whom I'd like to introduce you now. I'm a great admirer of Barclay, not because I think he's always successful, because I think he wrote a, a number of books that were very unsuccessful in various different ways. But he's very interesting. He's an innovator. He was ambitious as a writer. And he did unusual things and, and sometimes did them very, very well. And I think that writers who show ambition with the work, even if they don't always succeed, I think that's something to be admired as well as enjoyed. And and there's a lot to admire in Anthony Barclay, as, as well as one or two things to shake your head at. 
That's Martin Edwards, president of the Detection Club and a very experienced crime writer in his own right. He's written a biographical study of Barclay that is woven through his non-fiction account of 1920s and 30s crime fiction, The Golden Age of Murder. One of the things that Martin really highlights in that book is the way that Barclay drew inspiration from real-life cases. The particular case from 1889 that the Witchwood Poisoning case draws on also indicated a future preoccupation for Barclay. In that one, a woman was tried for a murder that nobody could prove she had done, and then still in prison for it after a barely legal trial. Issues of justice and morality engrossed him, especially when the murder cases were augmented by issues of adultery and divorce. The execution of Edith Thompson in 1923 and the death of Alma Rattenbury in 1935, who were both accused of murders they said they hadn't done, were also pivotal moments in the development of Barclay's thoughts on how the law treated women who tested the boundaries of marriage at the time. Again, we can look to incidents in Barclay's personal life to partly explain this obsession with doomed love triangles and marriages that didn't conform to contemporary norms. He and his first wife, Margaret, divorced in 1931, at a time when ending a marriage in public still wasn't a particularly common or respectable thing to do. She shortly afterwards married the man cited as her lover, or correspondent, in the proceedings. Barclay and his ex-wife seem to have remained on good terms, though, with Barclay's biographer Malcolm Turnbull recording that the author left Margaret a £1,000 in his will. The following year, Barclay married Helen Peters, the former wife of his own literary agent, having daringly named some of his characters in his 1927 novel, Roger Sheringham and the Vane Mystery, after the protagonists in this real-life love triangle. Or maybe if you include Margaret too, it was a square? Barclay had other, less successful passions as well. He was very keen on his brother's wife Hilary for a while, and he also had a very intense friendship with the novelist E.M. Delafield, who shared his interest in the Edith Thompson case. Delafield even wrote a novel about it herself, 1924's Messalina of the Suburbs. Delafield, of course, married an engineer who became a land agent in Devon, and her semi-fictionalised account of her life there as the provincial lady is perhaps what she is best remembered for today. Judging by what he shared in his writing, I've always thought of Barclay as quite a gloomy personality with a somewhat twisted sense of humour. There is certainly a slightly darker side to the way he threads hints about gender, sex and sexuality into his books. The Witchwood Poisoning case stands out in my mind mostly for Roger Sheringham's misogynist rants about women as the weaker sex. At one point he says, quote, Women are fundamentally incapable of reason and their one idea in life is to appear attractive to men. This book also includes several spanking scenes. Whenever the 18-year-old flapper character Sheila gets a bit above herself, her older male relatives publicly spank her, seemingly with the full approval of her parents. Roger Sheringham even swats her with a magazine himself at one point. I think these scenes would have raised the eyebrows of readers in 1926. After all, it's not like Agatha Christie or Dorothy L. Sayers were including such things in their books. And to the modern eye, they are truly strange and distasteful interludes to find in a detective novel. And this unsettling effect isn't just confined to this one book. You'll find it wherever you dive into the Barclay canon, Martin says. I think that Barclay is one of those writers who will always be a bit of a Marmite writer, just as he's a bit of a Marmite individual, I think. And I think you either like him a lot or you don't really get him. And I think that that was probably true in the 30s. It's certainly true now. But I think if you're interested in 
ingenuity, clever ideas, a touch of darkness, because there's certainly a, a touch of darkness in his personality. I think that comes through in the books. I hope you can begin to see from what we've said so far that Barclay is a complex, difficult figure in detective fiction. I think sometimes today the stories from the 1920s and early 30s get a reputation for being vintage and wholesome, but that most certainly isn't true of his work. Nor do I really think that this is an impression that's justified more broadly either, but absolutely not when it comes to Anthony Barclay, who is also the author of the titillatingly titled The Silk Stocking Murders. In his book The Golden Age of Murder, Martin Edwards reveals a tantalising clue to the cause of Barclay's reticence about being more of a public figure. He quotes from a biographical note that Barclay wrote about his detective Roger Sheringham, who is also an author. It says that, quote, Privately, he had quite a poor opinion of his own books, combined with a horror of ever becoming like some of the people with whom his new work brought him into contact, authors who take their own work with such deadly seriousness talk about it all the time and consider themselves geniuses. I don't know who these self-aggrandizing writers were, but it's hard not to read this sentiment as coming straight from Barclay himself, rather than just being something he invented for his detective to say. Distant as he was, Barclay had already found that crime fiction in the late 1920s was a far more lucrative endeavour than the comic sketches he had been writing earlier in his post-war career. And in 1929, he published a book that for many was his crowning achievement, the one that cemented his status among the greats. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gurem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code-breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. The Poison Chocolates case is a masterpiece. There's no two ways about it. It once again stars Roger Sheringham, but he's far from the only sleuth we see in action in this plot. 
Sheringham here is the president of the Crime Circle, a group of half a dozen amateur sleuths who like to meet and talk about cases over dinner. The book opens with such an evening, only the guest of honour is a Scotland Yard inspector, and he gives them the particulars of a high society poisoning case that has the official detectives completely stumped. The Crime Circle members decide that they will each investigate separately, and then take it in turns to reveal their solutions one evening at a time, and see if any of them can succeed where the police have failed. What you get, in essence, is a whodunit with six different solutions. Each detective works from the same initial information, and then goes out to investigate for themselves, following their own chosen methodology and pet theories. Each solution that they arrive at demonstrates the benefits and limitations of a different approach to detection, as well as the character's personality and prejudices. In a way, Barclay is making fun of the murder mysteries conventions at the same time that he's pushing them to their limits. If the fundamental question of a book like this is, who done it? Then the answer here is, this person, no, that one, no, somebody else, and so on. It's a great book for those who like to try and beat the detective to the solution themselves, too. I don't mind telling you that the first time I read it, I was feeling very smug through solutions one to four, only to have my version appear as number five, not number six. There have been two more possible solutions added since Barclay published this book, by the way. In 1979, Christiana Brand published another one, and in 2016, Martin Edwards added his own for the British Library reprint. Barclay wasn't the first to write a whodunit with multiple solutions, but he certainly brought wider attention to the idea that there could be more to a crime story than just murder, investigation, denouement. He really was very influential. The classic detective story in many ways is the Poison Chocolates case with the multiple solutions. The idea of the multiple solutions was used a lot by John Dixon Carr, Christiana Brand and other writers, but Barclay did it very brilliantly. And that was a book that was hugely admired at the time. And it inspired many other writers. But he also wrote the book which, as far as I know, I stand to be corrected, was the first murder mystery novel where the identity of the corpse is deliberately withheld from the reader, although it's known to the detectives. So it's an additional puzzle. But who was done in? That's a book called Murder in the Basement. And you see that idea used successfully, even in very recent times, Lucy Foley, Hunting Party, there's an element of that story. It's not just a whodunit, but there's a, a mystery about who the victim was. So that was an innovation which he's not had much credit for, but I think it's also quite significant. The Poison Chocolates case, and Barclay's innovation in the genre more generally, earned him the admiration of his peers even if, as a person, he wasn't always the most friendly. Well, I think as a crime writer, he was hugely admired. Agatha Christie, I think, particularly admired his detective novels, and she was a big fan. Dorothy L. Sayers, too, in the early days, although I, I also think that their personal relationship had a few setbacks during the 1930s. He, he, was, a, he was a difficult customer, and Dorothy probably wasn't the easiest either. So they had a, a slightly mixed time as, as friends. But I think that generally there's a huge amount of critical admiration for his work. Around the time that the Poison Chocolates case was published in 1929, Barclay also began to work on bringing one aspect of that story into being, 
In the book, his sleuth is part of a crime circle and clearly derives great pleasure from having colleagues. And so in life, Barclay began to bring together crime writers for dinners where they could talk shop, make friends, and otherwise share their enthusiasm for all aspects of detection. By 1930, these gatherings had become formalised and the group became known as the Detection Club, with Barclay as one of the prime movers. I covered this in much more detail on a previous episode, in which Martin, who is the president of the present-day Detection Club, talked us through that history. So do go back and listen to that if you haven't already. Around the same time that the club was getting started, Barclay was also at work on a new literary project. He had ideas about how the detective novel could incorporate more psychological tension, and how the reader's sympathies could be manipulated to blur the boundary between good and bad, guilty and innocent, that had been so black and white in the genre to date. In 1931, he published a novel that embodied his ideas on this, Malice Aforethought. But for at least a year afterwards, nobody knew that it had been written by Barclay. He had gone digging back through his mother's aristocratic family tree, and found an ancestor called Francis Isles, a black sheep and a smuggler. That was the name he chose for the author of this novel, and the identity of Isles was a secret he kept very closely. Victor Galance, his publisher, smartly leaked that Isles was the pen name of an already well-known writer, which threw literary London into a frenzy of guessing. According to Barclay's biographer Malcolm Turnbull, popular choices included E.M. Forster, H.G. Wells, Aldous Huxley, E.M. Delafield and Rose Macaulay. Although it seems that at least some critics had worked it out sooner, it wasn't until his non-fiction book O England was published in 1934 that Barclay confirmed that Francis Isles, A.B. Cox and Anthony Barclay were all the same writer. Malice Aforethought stands out among the plethora of detective novels published in the early 30s because of the way it turns the by now familiar conventions of the genre on their head. It's narrated by the murderer, who reveals his identity to the reader in the novel's opening line. Barclay's great achievement with this book is making it compulsive reading, despite the fact that you know who did it right from the start. He even makes you root for the murderer at times, as he plays with ideas of blame and guilt alongside the unravelling of a crime. Francis Isles's follow-up book, 1932's Before the Fact, similarly confounds the expectations we have for a murder mystery story, albeit in a different way. In that one, you never really find out who did it, after all. The remarkable thing about Anthony Barclay is that he only wrote crime novels for about 15 years. His first came out in 1925, and his last in 1939, which compared to the careers of Christie, Marsh, Allingham and Mitchell that spanned decades, is really an extremely short period of time. He lived until 1971 too, but something stopped him in his tracks after the onset of the Second World War. I think there were probably a mix of reasons. He he said he wasn't making enough money from the crime fiction. I'm slightly sceptical about that as an excuse. I think he lost his gusto. He wrote a letter in the late 50s or early 60s to a writer called George Bellairs, who's also published in the British Library series. And he, he said to Bellairs in the letter, hang on to the gusto, believe me, it goes. And I think that that came from the heart. I think he just lost his enthusiasm, the desire, the energy that had kept him working very frenetically almost 
in the second half of the 20s and through the 1930s when he did write a lot of books. And then I suspect mainly because of issues in his personal life, he just lost that uh, zest and maybe had an extreme case of writer's block. That's been suggested to me by a family member. That was the impression that that person had. Um, it's hard to tell because he was quite secretive. But I think that one way or another, he, he lost his enthusiasm for writing fiction, although he, he continued to enjoy reading it. Barclay continued to review crime fiction and by no means abandoned his interest in the genre. He just didn't publish any more stories of his own. Part of that was personal, no doubt. But Martin also thinks that the fading fortunes of the Golden Age detective novel had something to do with it too. The Second World War did change everything. And of course, one of the things it did was that the books that had previously been enormously fashionable were no longer of such interest, much less appeal to the critics who were looking at the new writers like Patricia Highsmith and Julian Simmons and others, and therefore perhaps of less interest to the publishers. So there were a number of Golden Age typewriters, not least in the United States, who simply couldn't get their books published at all. Christie, of course, is an exception to every rule. And Nio Marsh was high profile and, and very successful. But the golden age, although books of that type continued to be written, and of course, still continue to be written in one way or another, the golden age as a period of burning intensity and innovation seems to me to have come to an end with the war. Anthony Barclay was a key part of that innovation. His passion for true crime, his interest in pulling psychology into the puzzle plot, and his insistence that every book should push the genre in a new and different way, should mean that there's no appreciation of crime fiction in the 1920s and 30s that excludes him. But his personal reticence and the darker aspects of his personality make him a difficult writer to love in his entirety. There's absolutely nothing cosy about Anthony Barclay, but his work is still fascinating in all its bleak, dark angularity. As the nights draw in, you can do worse than to delve into the pages of an Anthony Barclay book and plumb the depths of his mind. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. <laughs> to be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. 
Listen wherever you get your podcasts.